I grew up in the South, and so I feel like I've been able to kind of understand that there are certain Southern traditions that work no matter where you find yourself in any Southern city. I moved out of the South for a little while, worked at a church in Las Vegas, and learned some different customs. But when we got back to the South, we got back to Chick-fil-A, got back to Sweet Tea, got back to all the good things that you consider Southern. And I wanted to just maybe see if uh, we're on the same page about the way we do things around here. So if you're at Cracker Barrel and the server asked you if you want biscuits or cornbread, the correct answer is somebody said both and that's my kind of person. Yes, that's just the way we do. You can't have enough of those type of delicious carbs right there. Buttermilk biscuits and some delicious cornbread. Another thing that I've never really fully understand, I think it's more of a southern mom thing than a southern dad thing, is monogramming everything. Your apparel, your clothes, but apparently even trucks are something that southern mamas want to wear. Now, you know, I don't even think they teach cursive anymore in schools, and so there might be a whole generation of kids who think that's a different language, but that's the monogram of a southern mama. Could, I mean, that was an E in the middle, right? Like, it, like I'm, I'm still kind of like learning to interpret some of my uh, monogram language, but that's kind of a thing we do in the South. One more thing, if you show up to a dinner party, if you show up to maybe like a potluck, you're going to see a ton of casseroles, but you're also going to see some deviled eggs. And I'm a big fan of deviled eggs, but I got to ask you guys, I'm pulling the audience, are deviled eggs meant to be served with or without pickle relish? Without. I'm going to go team without. I think, and I don't think this is, should be a controversial thing, but I think the only way pickles should be served is fried I'm a big fan of fried pickles. So here's the thing. You know that there's just kind of a way we do things if you're from the South. If you're not from the South, you might feel like you're on the outside of an inside joke. And I find it kind of fascinating that we might be in the same time zone, but just because we're in the South and you might be from the North or somewhere else in this country, things can still get lost in translation. And we exist in the same culture, the same country, the same time frame. So if things can get lost in translation between us today, imagine how many things get lost in translations from a Middle Eastern document 2,000 years ago. There's a reason we've been studying the kingdom of God at all three of our church locations because a lot gets lost in translation. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is kind of countercultural to what's ingrained in us with the world that we are growing up in. And hopefully as we study the kingdom of God, it shows us that maybe there's some ways in the kingdom of me or the ways in the kingdom of this world that aren't a great reflection or not a great imitation of the ways, the beliefs, the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. And when you compare your life against the life of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, like me, you're going to find some things about my faith that are not congruent with my actions. And being kingdom-minded means wrapping my, not just my beliefs, but my behaviors around God's ways. And that's not an easy thing to do. Matter of fact, since the very beginning of the Christian movement, Christ followers have found themselves in the middle of a tug-of-war of the kingdom of the world that we've grown up in. Versus the teachings of the kingdom of heaven. And you find yourselves in the middle of this tension that even the early Christ followers would have existed within. 
Like, how does a guy like Jesus, who was going around healing people, preaching, had multitudes that were big fans of his miracles, all of a sudden, within a week's time, have the entire multitude turn into a mob that wants to see him killed? Surely there's some things that have gotten lost in translation from the time that the Bible was written to the world that we are living in now. So before we dive into John chapter 14, just want to give you a little bit of a nerdy, geeky, historical backdrop as to why this message of Jesus would have become something that was a source of conflict in Israel. Why a guy who could heal blind people would get executed. What was so controversial about his teachings and his ways that would warrant the people turning their back on him? Well, to understand ancient Israel, you got to kind of dig into a lot of the empires that were fighting for territory in the Middle East. See, God's people, hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the scene, had been dispersed and exiled all throughout Iraq and Iran. They were called the Syria and the Persian empires and the Babylonian empires. They had kind of taken over and exiled the Israelites. And underneath the Persians, they were allowed to maybe slowly start assimilating back into Israel, but they were a splintered people. And then all of a sudden, Alexander the Great shows up and conquers the Persian Empire, and they begin teaching the beliefs that we would come to call Western philosophies or Hellenism. And with Hellenism would come public education, public health care, aqueducts so you get running water. Even the Greek architecture style had a natural flow of air, and it was the building blocks for air conditioning. And before Alexander the Great and his generals would come to conquer a territory or a country or a village, they would send one of their messengers with a source of news about what was coming their way. And the word that was used to describe this messaging process was where we get our word, gospel. So Alexander the Great and his Greek generals and then the next empire, the Roman generals, would have a gospel message and they would say, hey, we're going to come and we're going to conquer your village unless you adopt our ways. Unless you assimilate into Hellenism. Unless you adapt our beliefs and our philosophies, we are going to destroy your kingdom. So it's really interesting then that Jesus and his original followers would kind of subvert that word gospel and mean something totally different. Not a message of conquest but a message of compassion. Nonetheless, the early Christ followers, the early Israelites who would be, who'd be wrestling with if they really believe in this Jesus guy had gotten used to some of the amenities and the comforts that came along with Greeks and Romans taking over the Middle East. We would even see in archaeological digs in the city of Jerusalem, high religious leaders that would have tapestries and mosaics of Greek gods of fertility and alcohol and all these pagan rituals, but also a copy of a Torah scroll in their house. And you'd be sitting there thinking like, That's, these are conflicting ideologies. These are conflicting belief systems. How can they do both of those? They want to have their cake and eat it too. And then I would say it's easy for us 2,000 years later to throw stones back at these guys. But let's look what's on our smartphone right now. We've got a Netflix subscription and a Bible app occupying both the same pocket. We very much experience the tug of war between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. 
And so as we dive into God's word and try to compare his ways against ours, hopefully we will see some parts of our life that need to better represent the good news of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, on his last night before he would be executed and and tried for our sins, he was in an upper room observing a Passover meal with his friends. And in John chapter 14, he's giving them one last message, preparing them to what it means to be living in the kingdom of heaven. And he says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is telling his disciples, I am the way to significance. I am the way to a meaningful life. I am the way to finding peace in the midst of a tumultuous world. I am the way. The ways of Jesus are the ways to Jesus. And the ways of Jesus are not the easiest to adopt because the ways of the world are so ingrained into us. And those who would hear the teachings of Jesus, very much like you and I, would be confronted with the decision, do I just keep on doing things the way that I've always done them around here? Or do I adopt and assimilate into the ways, the teachings of Jesus? If you are a Christ follower, you've experienced what it means to come to that crisis of belief. Maybe it was at a VBS at Grandma's church when you were a kid, or maybe it was with one of Pastor Brian's sermons, or maybe it was a a YouTube clip. But at some point, if you've named Jesus the Lord of your life, you've had to ask yourself, is this really the way? If I keep going the path that I'm on, where is it going to wind up? I like to think about things in terms of Disney and Star Wars to help my brain understand things. So you probably have heard of this uh, amazing phenomenon on Disney Plus called The Mandalorian. A famous quote from The Mandalorian is, this is the way. And the central figure, the protagonist of The Mandalorian, is this bounty hunter who is a part of a group of bounty hunters that are bound by a creed, and they would make all of their group decisions by this creed that they would live up to. And when they were done debating and kind of going over what their decision needed to be, they would end their conversation saying, this is the way. And then they would go and make a lot of money capturing people. But this particular Mandalorian had a crisis of belief. He was approaching a crossroads where he could continue doing things the way that he would always done, or he could rise to a higher, nobler calling on a search and rescue mission for baby Yoda. This generation's Tickle Me Elmo. You know, I was growing up in the day of Tickle Me Elmo, and I was just a little bit too old to admit publicly that I wanted one, but I was just young enough to think, but man, those things are pretty cool. I never got one. They could never stay on the shelf. But this bounty hunter approached a crossroads and decided that he couldn't just do things the way they've always been done. The way he was on was not going to get him where he wanted to go. And when we approach 
the teachings of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven invading the kingdom of earth, you and I have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with this teaching, with this truth? Matter of fact, the only thing that you and I are accountable for when it comes to the entire gospel message of Jesus is if we are accepting it as truth or not. We don't earn the right to become his followers. We don't earn the right to become forgiven. His love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness is a gift, not a reward. We work for rewards according to our our wages, our work, our ethic. That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is this is a gift. And the way you receive that gift is simply through repentance. Repentance is our response to this truth. The Bible says that if we believe with our hearts and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and he rose from the grave, we will be saved. That's the only thing we're on the hook for in this entire gospel message is if we will accept that truth or not. Do the ways of Jesus make sense to me? Is the kingdom of heaven where I want to have my citizenship? If I believe that this is true, if I believe this man's claims are true, the Bible says something then happens inside of our heart. It says that we become born again. It means that we're given a new life. He puts us on a new pathway. There is a new way of living. And this word for life in the original text wasn't just a biological sense of living and waking up and going to bed and eating and nourishment and habits and routines. No, this word for life is actually where people get the word zoe. And it actually meant a sense of vitality, a radiant, robust, thriving, abundant kind of living. That's what he wants for his Christ followers. When's the last time you find, found yourself in a moment where you just kind of had this sigh of relief and thought to yourself, man, this is living. Maybe for some of you it was on a golf course. That certainly wouldn't be the case for me. Maybe for some of you it was when sporting events started allowing people back into stadiums. Not really the case for me. Maybe for some of you it's summertime and you're hoping you're going to have one of those moments out on Lake Lanier this afternoon or tomorrow where you can finally just stop all the comings and goings of life and just, ah, man, sunrise, the sunset, my family, some food, a lake. This is living. I'll show you a picture of what it feels like for me. This is living. I feel this way whenever I get to like finally get into Disney World where I become a kid again. I love Disney. I would go without my kids. Like, I love it. I go so I can kind of vicariously live through them. I'm a Disney World fan, and when we go down there, I just feel like I can ah, breathe. And I know you're probably like, but long lines and all the things. And I'm like, you, you, you've never done Disney with the Castleberries. Like, we do it right. But here's what I mean when I talk about this idea of life. The life that Jesus has for us as his followers. This sense of vibrance, this sense of abundance, this sense of living is not something that you can get just from a vacation or an afternoon on the lake or when your sporting team wins the championship. These are all good things, but those are all moments that can come and go. They're all circumstantial. They're all situational. The sense of living that you and I are made for as Christ followers is something 
that doesn't fluctuate based on what's in the bank account. The sense of living that you and I are made for as Christ followers is not meant to fluctuate based on who follows us or unfollows us on social media. The sense of living that you and I are made for is something that goes beyond favorable circumstances or broken circumstances. Because in the upside down kingdom of God, the blessings that come our way have little to do with our performance, our accomplishments, our resources. The blessings that come our way are totally based on who Jesus is and what he has done. And he told his followers just a few chapters before this that he came to give us life and give it to us more abundantly. But this is an area where I think we realize the tug of war, the wrestling match between the ways of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. Because it's very hard for us to describe a blessing. It's very hard for us to describe abundance when we open up our phone and look how much more blessed everybody appears to be on social media. You see, in the kingdom of the world, blessings are attached to resources. Blessings are attached to trophies. Blessings are attached to retirements and all the things. And I'm not here to downplay the significance of any of those things. Those are all fine, but those aren't what we bank our life on. Those are bad gods. They'll overpromise and underdeliver. But in the kingdom of heaven, the life that he gives us when we name him the Lord of our lives, when we come to a place of repentance, is so much more than just a ticket to heaven on the other side of death. See, the ways of Jesus, they give us peace in the afterlife, yes, but they also give us purpose for this life. And so often I think preachers just describe Christianity as an insurance policy to get into heaven one day. And then just to play it safe and hope for the best until you're united with him in the glorious afterlife. Listen, I don't want to downplay the significance of having hope in heaven. I don't want to downplay the significance of standing before Jesus one day and hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. But I also... Don't want to downplay what Jesus meant when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the kingdom of heaven is not just the reality of a paradise for eternity with Jesus. See, the, the gospel proclamation that Jesus was all about was heaven coming to earth through you through your joy, through your conversations, through your spiritual gifts, meeting the needs of someone else, through your story of encountering God's grace, through his ways becoming your ways, you then help other people identify the way to the Father as well. And so when we compare our lives our ways against Jesus' ways, yes. You're going to find some things in your life that you're like, you know what, that's kingdom of world living. And my goal is not to make you feel guilty about that. My goal is to hopefully crack open a door and allow the kingdom of heaven to infiltrate and influence every decision, every calendar 
invite, the way we spend our money, the way we talk to people, that would all be about the good news of the kingdom of heaven. His love for you. His love for your neighbor being expressed through your love for your neighbor. It all points back to Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. So here's how I want to wrap up our time today. In just a few moments, the band's going to come back up on stage and we're going to sing a song of worship. And I don't want this just to be kind of a kumbaya way to wrap up the service together. The way I see it, we've all got some sort of spiritual decision to make. We've all got a part of our life that we need to surrender into Jesus. We've all got some ways of living that need to better represent the ways of Jesus. And I would just challenge you in these next few moments, lean into that. Holy Spirit, he's not, he's not trying to condemn you. He might be trying to convict some of us, but in conviction there is always an on-ramp to a new beginning, a second chance, a better way of doing things. And what you'll see is when you lean into those opportunities, when you lean into those convictions, when you lean into the nudges of the Holy Spirit, the peace and the purpose, the meaning you can have by living fully devoted to Jesus will outweigh any other pursuit of life. I want that for you. And I think there's some of us in the room who have a spiritual decision to make. But if we really believe (laughs) that Jesus is who he says he is, And Jesus really did what he said he was going to do. Some of us in the room may be on the fence with this whole Christianity thing. And if that's the case, I want to invite you to come to a place of surrender today. You don't have to have it all figured out. The Bible tells us with faith like a child we can receive the love of Jesus. When I was a child, I didn't have all the answers. (laughs) thought I might. But I had a faith that anything was possible. That's what I want for you today too. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're just going to enter into a holy moment of just reflection and prayer. And to the Christ followers in the room, just do some business with the Spirit. Allow Him to guide you into deeper levels of trust and obedience. But for those of us who are maybe unsure of our faith, trying to figure this Jesus thing out, I want to invite you to, in the quiet of your own heart, your own mind, to just repeat a prayer after me. And it's not these words that will solve all of your problems. It's the belief in your heart that will guide you to Jesus. It's a prayer of trust. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of recognizing Jesus as Lord. So that seems to be where you're at. Just repeat this after me. In your own heart, in your own mind. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. My ways aren't cutting it. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave to forgive me and save me. Become the Lord of my life, and I will live all my days for you. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.